Oscar was 31, working two jobs, with three little kids and a fourth on the way. His living room in Framingham, Massachusetts, a Boston suburb, was covered with toys, and in the kitchen in a corner were some trophies that he won as a bullfighter as a teenager back in Guatemala, where he grew up. He'd been in the United States since he was 19, a dozen years. And then he got a strange uh, phone call. A woman from the public prosecutor's office back in Guatemala was looking for him. Now, he was in the United States illegally, and he worried, could it be about that somehow? And then he spoke with this woman. Her name was Sarah Romero, and it had nothing to do with that. It was way stranger. She had been looking into a massacre that had happened back in the early 1980s out in the countryside in a tiny town during Guatemala's Civil War. And she believed Oscar was one of the survivors. I was, like, confused. I didn't know what she, she was talking about. But she said, uh, I know you don't know much about it. Or you probably don't know anything about it. Because no. I was quiet. I was just listening to what she's saying. Clearly, they have the wrong person, Oscar thought. He'd never been to the little town where this massacre happened. He grew up far away from there. He didn't have any questions about his past. In fact, he had a pretty idyllic childhood. Yes, his mom had died when he was a baby. Yes, his dad was killed in a truck accident when he was four. But his dad's mom, his grandmother, raised him comfortably. He felt loved. What Sarah told Oscar was this. The massacre that she was investigating happened in 1982, when Oscar was three, in a village called Dos Eres. More than 200 people were killed there. Sarah had spoken to several soldiers who were at the massacre, and they told her that two boys had been spared. One of the boys, the soldier said, was taken by a lieutenant named Oscar Ramirez Ramos. That was Oscar's dad. If Sarah's suspicions were right, the man that Oscar thought was his father, the man he had looked up to his entire life, had stolen him from his biological family, his unit killed them and their entire village, Dos Eres. Though, Sarah says, when she first contacted Oscar, I told him about the two boys without getting into any specifics about the participation of his dad so as not to hurt his feelings. But I let him know that he could be one of the surviving boys. Well, today on our radio show, we have investigators trying to solve an unsolved murder of more than 200 people from the 1980s in a case that could potentially nudge the political climate of their entire country and finally hold military officials responsible for massacres that happened there. Just this week, the former president of the country was indicted for genocide in this case. And at the center of the whole thing is a guy, Oscar Ramirez, who discovers that everything he thought about his past, his dad, who he really is, is all a lie. Oscar's DNA, the DNA of this guy in some Boston suburb, becomes the final piece of evidence in this case. The idea is that if they could just prove with his DNA that he was stolen from Dos Eres, they could link the lieutenant who raised him and his unit to this massacre. For the very first time, they might bring high-level soldiers and officers to justice for one of these massacres, which had never been done in Guatemala. From WBEC Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Our program today is a co-production with ProPublica and the Fundacion Mepi in Mexico City. It has taken months to report and research. It is truly an amazing, heartbreaking tale that takes us deep inside some experiences that I think we all see headlines about that can often seem very far away and hard to imagine the reality of. 
that, as you'll hear, are not far away at all. We're devoting our entire program to it. Stay with us. Okay, uh, before we dive into the story, just a quick history review. Now, I myself was the kind of insufferable, politically correct person who was obsessed with Latin America back in the 1980s. Uh, I called Nicaragua, Nicaragua, and actually went to Nicaragua for a month during the fifth anniversary of the Sandinista Revolution. I traveled in Guatemala during the Civil War. You, however, might be what we call a normal person and didn't do any of that. So to provide some context, I turned to Kate Doyle who's uh, testified as an expert witness in the trials of human rights abuses by senior military officials in Guatemala. She's a senior analyst at a watchdog group in Washington, D.C. called the National Security Archive. The violence in Guatemala made the country an outlier because you don't have anything on the scale of what happened in that country in places like Peru or Argentina or Chile. It's funny when you talk about this, I picture, okay, somewhere in the back of your mind, there's a list of like a ranking of the most effed up countries in the region. <laughs> right. And is Guatemala number one? Guatemala's way up there. Give me the rankings. Okay, so 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 number one, effed up is? Honduras probably right now. Honduras. Honduras is bad. Okay, and then number two? Guatemala's pretty bad. Pretty bad going back decades. Starting in the 1960s, small guerrilla groups challenged what was a corrupt and repressive government. There was also a broader movement calling for political rights, land reform, workers' rights. This all was met with brutal violence. Reformers were assassinated. Civilian populations in the countryside were accused of harboring guerrillas and exterminated in the name of anti-communism. This violence peaked in the 1980s. These were essentially scorched-earth operations. Soldiers would sweep through targeted areas. They were using plans drafted by the Army High Command, and, and they would essentially kill everything in sight. She says that what's amazing is the pattern. You see the same techniques again and again. A warning, uh, this description gets violent. A patrol would enter the community, usually on market day when everybody was gathered. And they would immediately separate out the men from the women and children, and they would put them into some of the village's biggest buildings, like the school or the church. And then the soldiers would proceed to destroy everything. They would burn the fields where the villagers grew their food. They would slaughter the animals. They would destroy the houses. They would burn them to the ground. They would bring the men then out and execute them. They would then take the women and the, and the children. They would rape most of the girl children and the women. And then they would kill them. This happened in over 600 villages, tens of thousands of people. A truth commission found that the number of Guatemalans killed or disappeared by their own government was over 180,000. And unlike many other Latin American countries, none of the soldiers and leaders who did all this were held accountable. Many of them transitioned into civilian government. Most of them continued to be very notable, very prominent figures in Guatemalan society. For years, the government denied the massacres happened at all. Even after a peace treaty with the rebels in 1996, a truth commission was set up but told specifically not to name names, not to gather evidence for trials. No soldier or military leader was brought to justice for the massacres. Until Dos Eres and the investigation into what happened there. Several people were involved in reporting the story that you're about to hear. There's Sebastian Rotella and Anna Arana. There's our producer, uh, Brian Reed, and Habiba Noshin. Sometimes you're going to hear uh, Brian in the tape. Habiba, 
narrates the story. Here she is. When investigators started looking into the Dos Eras massacre in the 90s, people trying to uncover the truth about that sort of thing were being killed. Like an anthropologist, Myrna Mack, who was trying to expose the details of the military's scorched earth campaign and then was stabbed 27 times by a member of the president's intelligence team. Or, like in 1998, when a Catholic bishop headed a truth commission that concluded that the military was behind the vast majority of the atrocities during the Civil War. Just two days after the report came out, he was found bludgeoned to death with a concrete block in his garage. But none of this stopped a woman named Aura Elena Farfan when she first started looking into rumors of a secret grave at a place called Dos Eres. Aura looks like someone's grandmother. She's 72 years old with short graying hair. In 1984, a member of her family was disappeared. Aura suspected the military was behind it. So she and her brother started looking into what happened. Two months later, her brother vanished too. So Aura started an organization to investigate and bring these kinds of cases to justice. And that's how she came across the massacre of those Eras. At the beginning of 1994, we received reports of bones being found just on the surface of the earth. And in addition, there were reports of a well. The well, Aura heard, had bodies inside of it. It was in the jungle, located in what used to be the village of Dos Cerras. In 1982, Dos Cerras disappeared. One day, the residents were there. The next day, they were nowhere to be found. When Aura heard about the bones, she put together a team of forensic anthropologists. She told my producer, Brian Reed, and me, they trekked seven and a half miles into the jungle. Bueno, muy desolado, no era... Eh... It was desolation. Overgrown weeds, trees, bushes would cover us. We couldn't see each other. And because we couldn't see each other, just by whistling or yelling, we would call on each other. Do you remember the moment that you saw the well? I remember it. It, it was like sunk. It, 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 it sank one meter. Or maybe more. It was three meters below, and then this tree was growing in the well. They began digging. One meter, two meters, three meters, nothing. Day after day, they went back to the well. They invited the local public prosecutor. He came by, looked into the well, told them they wouldn't find anything there but dog bones. Finally, they hit four meters. A warning that the next minute or so gets very graphic and probably isn't suitable if you're listening with small children. We were able to see the shirt of a small boy, the bones in sight, and that made us think that all the inhabitants of those eras were there. So they kept digging, and they found more and more bones, more and more bodies, more and more clothing. They dug up shirts, shoes, hairpins, heart-shaped earrings, boots with silver spurs. In a video they shot at the time, one of the anthropologists stands at the bottom of the well. It's about 40 feet deep. She looks exhausted. There's a tiny skeleton at her feet. Just to think that they were thrown from that height into the well, she says. It's hard to even imagine it. It's hard to convince yourself of these things. At the end of it all, 
they found at least 162 bodies, plus lots of incomplete remains. 67 of the bodies were victims under 12 years old. Their average age was seven. Aura and her team wanted to identify these bodies, so they took the remains to the center of the nearest town. They put them together as best they could into skeletons and laid them out. Alongside, they placed the clothing they found in the well next to the body they thought each piece belonged to. Then they put out an invitation for the community to come and look. There's video of this, all the bones and clothing spread out on a concrete floor. People filed by, taking it all in. Some of them recognized clothing worn by their relatives and friends from those setas. But only 10 people came forward to specifically identify relatives. Most were still afraid to admit they knew anyone who had disappeared from Doceras. People still remembered how in 1982, right after the village vanished, family members went to the army commander in the nearest town and asked what happened. This commander, Lieutenant Carlos Antonio Carias, said the guerrillas were responsible. The guerrillas had killed or taken everyone. But he also told family members that if they talked about the incident, even asked about it, they would die. Which just reinforced people's suspicions that the army was probably behind it. So Aura put herself out there even more to try to get people to talk. She appeared on local media in the province they were in, Petén. Aprovechamos cada vez que íbamos al Petén para hablar por la radio. Each time that we visited El Petén, we took advantage of that moment to speak on the radio, to speak on the TV, to ask people that whomever knew something about Dos Erres to come forward. Why were you chuckling just then? Because sometimes I think that I was too daring. La vida en Guat de los guatemaltecos no vale nada. The life of Guatemalans doesn't cost a thing. It's, it's not worth a thing. And just anything could have happened to us. Aura was worried about how members of the military might react when they heard her announcements. But she never expected the reaction she got from this guy. I heard this and I looked at um, my little children playing and I decided I'd do this so the same thing would not happen to them as happened to the children in the massacre at Dos Eres. Fabio Pinzon Jerez is a former sergeant in the military and after hearing Aura on the radio, he got on a bus and took the 12-hour ride to Guatemala City. He walked into the UN office and told him he knew what had happened at Dos Ceres because he had taken part in it. He did something no other soldier had ever done in Guatemala. He confessed. Aura went to see Fabio in Petén. A UN official trailed her to make sure she was safe. We went to his house, we knocked on the door. His children were playing nearby, around the table. He says, come in, sit down. And so I told him, I just come from the UN office, and they told me that you wanted to speak to me. He told me, that's right, I wanted to talk to you because what I have right here, in my heart, I cannot stand it anymore. 
It's hurting me so much. That's how we talked for four hours. He told me everything that had happened. The story Fabio told Aura was deeply upsetting. For nearly 15 years, he'd kept it a secret, even from his wife. He told Aura what he and other soldiers had done at Dos Eres. Were you mad at him? Of course I was. I didn't want to shake his hand. Why? Why did you not want to shake his hand? Because I didn't. It wasn't in me to shake his hand. After Fabio confessed, he convinced another soldier to do the same, to confess in exchange for immunity. This soldier's name is Cesar Franco Abanias. They're both in hiding now. We met them secretly at a hotel. The story they told us is disturbing. So again, if you have children with you, it's probably not appropriate for them. Also, if you're sensitive to violence, you may want to tune back in in about 15 minutes. Fabio joined the military when he was 18. His dad worked for the Air Force and got him a job, he says, because he had nothing else to do. He eventually became an army cook. And in 1979, the army assigned him to a place called the School of the Caibiles. The Caibiles are an elite special forces unit. They refer to themselves as killing machines. The school is where they trained in jungle warfare, like how to jump out of planes and moving vehicles. As part of survival training, Fabio says, they ate raw snake and dog. He saw people being tortured. Fabio says he tried to make it as a full-fledged Caibil. But I, I just really only lasted about two weeks. My knees just couldn't take it. <laughs> so that's when you went back to cooking? Well, actually, uh, I, I spent a week sleeping, and then uh, I went back to cooking. In 1982, the president of Guatemala, Afraín Rios Montt, formed a secret ops unit of all the instructors of the school. These soldiers were the elite of the elite. Fabio was their cook, and their job was to deploy on urgent missions all over the country. One of those was to Dos Eras. It was fall of that year, and the army had just suffered a humiliating attack from the rebels. Several soldiers had been killed. So commanders called up the special unit, Cesar, the other soldier we talked to told us the story. Unlike Fabio, Cesar has the bearing of a soldier. He's serious, rarely smiles. They have the same interpreter. O sea, nos dijeron que una patrulla de, de la zona 20... They said that a unit from our brigade had been ambushed by the guerrillas and they had uh, taken 21 rifles. At the time, the military was waging its scorched earth campaign where they destroyed any village they suspected of helping guerrillas, even something as small as giving them some food. In this case, officers told the unit that guerrillas were keeping the rifles in Dos Eras. And they told us that our mission was to recover the 21 rifles that had been taken. And so the plan was we'd go in in the dead of night for surprise. Their strategy was to pretend that they were guerrillas. That would make it easier to sneak in. It would also make it easier to later blame guerrillas for this attack. So they disguised themselves. They wore green t-shirts, camouflage pants, and red armbands. They rode in vegetable trucks that they carjacked off the highway. When they reached Dos Eras at 2 in the morning, they found a quiet, peaceful village. 
too small, in fact, to even be a full village. Residents were still asleep. They were mostly small-time farmers who grew beans, corn, and pineapples. Though when the Kaibiles arrived, Cesar says, they expected something different. Well, we were uh, expecting that they were going to shoot at us because we thought that the people in Dos Aires were all communists. And so we were expecting them to attack us. We were waiting for them to attack us with heavy armament, and it didn't happen. Nobody shot at us. They split off into smaller groups, including an assault group of the fiercest soldiers. Cesar says these were the soldiers who were normally in charge of capturing prisoners, interrogating them, and killing them. Psychopaths, he called them. This uh, assault group was giving the task of getting everybody uh, out of their houses. They put the women and children in the church and the men in the school. And so when they had everyone together, some of the women at the church began to scream for help, and they were raping them. They didn't respect anyone. Both soldiers, Cesar and Fabio, say this was the moment when the mission turned from recovering rifles to something darker. <laughs> 